Welcome to the Mint's podcast series, In the Boardroom, Practical Advice and Guidance for Growth-Oriented Companies. Today's topic is our first session, which will be on the basics of a board meeting. What should your board meeting look like? What should be the content? What should be the frequency? The who, what, when, where, why, and how. Later, in other sessions of the podcast, we'll cover things such as running an effective meeting and how you can create board committees, and maybe what kinds of things you might think about when you're thinking about things like a down round, or when you're thinking about going public, or when you're thinking about how to incorporate ESG into your meetings. But again, today's topic is just on the basics. How do you conceive and how do you get started with your board? My name is Steve Osborne. I'm a private company lawyer in Mintz's Silicon Valley office. I'm here with two of our top corporate governance lawyers, Melanie Levy, who is a capital markets lawyer in our San Diego office, and Tom Burton, who's the chair of our clean energy and sustainability practice located in Boston. Melanie, will you introduce yourself, please? Well, thank you, Steve. So as mentioned, I am a capital markets attorney based in Mensa San Diego office. And what that means is I help companies raise money on the publicly traded capital markets. So that's NASDAQ, New York Stock Exchange, or taking a company public or helping a company raise money on the capital markets that is already public. And as part of that, we advise boards on pretty much any topic that you could imagine that would be pertinent to their business or pertinent to raising money for their business. And so I look greatly look forward to having this discussion. Great. And Tom? Thanks, Steve and Mel. Good to see you. I'm the chair of our energy and sustainability practice. I've been uh, working with uh, investors uh, and companies uh, building businesses that seek to not only make a profit, but also impact uh, the environment in a positive way in our climate. I've been doing that for 25 years. Uh, and a big portion of what I do is advising boards on all manners of uh, their duties uh, and other critical decisions that need to be made throughout the financing and M&A process as they build their companies. That's great. Thanks, Tom. And, and Melanie, I, I get a question a lot from my startup clients. When should I create a board? What, what even is a board? What should I be thinking about? So what does a client who's just thinking about conceiving of a board, what is that and when is it usually formed? Okay. If you're forming a corporation and normally when clients have a business and they look to get funded, they're going to form what's called a Delaware corporation. It's a corporation that's formed under Delaware law. And the spoiler alert is once you form that corporation, you probably have a board. And at the very beginning, the board is probably you, the founder, or perhaps you and your partner. Now, as your business, let's say, matures or grows, you may have need for other advice on the board. And so you may have you may come across an investor. You may come across a person with expertise in your space. And at that point, you will add that person to the quote unquote board of directors. A board of directors is just a body of individuals, individual people who are in charge of managing and overseeing the business of the corporation. Those people, those individuals, and again, not corporations, those people who sit on this board of directors, they have a responsibility to manage and oversee the business and its senior executive managers for the benefit of the company shareholders. So in the very beginning, it's often once you found a company, the shareholder is probably you. So you have a duty to yourself, which is somewhat 
not incredibly complicated. <laughs> However, as you begin to raise money or raise funds, you will start to acquire shareholders. Most likely, if you raise funds through issuing shares in your company, you will acquire shareholders who are not related to you. At first, maybe they're going to be friends and family. But as you move along and start to raise larger and larger sums of money, your shareholders might become investment funds, angel investors. And oftentimes, those investors are going to request to be members of the board of directors. So as a company moves through its life cycle, it starts often with a board of directors that's comprised of a couple individuals who had an idea to form a business to oftentimes a larger and larger group of individuals that represent perhaps multiple different investors who have differing interests in the business and other investors who have certain skill sets that the company might need. And then as the company, if you choose it to go on an IPO, you might go and find board members that have experience in that as well. And that ladies and gentlemen, is a board of directors. <laughs> That's great, Melody. Um, I, I think in many ways what I'm hearing there is is often the board exists from incorporation, but often it gets formalized really around when you're starting to raise money and, and you right. see people join the board. And maybe I'll jump ahead here a little bit and Tom ask you, like, who generally sits on these boards and how does that change over time as a company goes from where Melanie said it's sort of you and your garage up to a point of going public? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. And Melanie previewed some of the answers to this. You know, initially, you know, the companies will have their founders really as the as the board members, the board of directors members, and and uh, a key distinction between a board of directors and and other things which are not boards. We'll get into a minute. Is that the members of the board of directors have fiduciary duties to act in the best interests of the shareholders, and so over time. Uh, you might start with one, you know, just by law, you need to have one at the very beginning. But then afterwards, as you raise money, those board uh, members um, will often expand. We tend to recommend that boards are comprised of odd numbered individuals, three, five, seven, uh, largely because uh, if the board has to make a decision, and you have an even number of members, you can run into uh, what they call the problem of deadlock. If you have four, for example, and you know, two people each uh, disagreeing on a decision means you can't take action, uh, and that can be very bad for the corporation. So, so we like to go with the odd numbers. Uh, and uh, as Melanie noted, once uh, a startup raises capital, it will often add to its board a representative of the capital. So if it's a venture capital fund, it might be a, a uh, member of the venture capital fund team who will sit on the board of directors and have that fiduciary duty to all of the shareholders of the company. And then over time, as the businesses go to market and commercialize their technologies, they might add independent board members, members who are not also stockholders, you know, in, in short, who have particular expertise in the industry that the company is in. So, uh, for example, if I have a, uh, a startup that's uh, greening the industrial economy, uh, say concrete, I'm, we might find a an expert in that uh, industry who understands how businesses are run in that industry and built in that industry to uh, add to the board of directors. Uh, or alternatively, you know, somebody who, uh, if sales and scaling is uh, the key 
short to midterm requirement for the business, you know, an expert in sales in that industry. Uh, so that's the, the nutshell of, uh, of who sits on a board of directors. Tom, I think you make a good point about the independent director. And it's interesting, over my career, I've noticed that sometimes independent directors can play really important roles as you're making decisions. One of the things that we might see if there is an extended recession or downturn is, is we might see a situation where uh, a company is selling for less than the liquidation preference and there needs to be some adjustment made to incentivize management to stay at the company. And if, if that decision is, is made to create some kind of bonus pool or something like that for the founders, you're going to need to get a vote of your board to approve that. And, and if the founders are on the board and the investors are on the board, they're conflicted. And sometimes independent directors can play a very important role. Because as Delaware law has evolved over the years, it's not just about whether the decision is fair, but it's also about whether the process is fair. And so often being able to have independent directors weigh in and, and truly be independent on decisions as important as a decision like that can be very valuable. I do think that in some cases, you know, control of the board is the thing that is most maybe contentious as you grow. And maybe, Melanie, if you can speak a little bit to how this odd-numbered board gets balanced between founders and investors. Yeah, no, it's, it's, that's a really interesting question. So I would say pretty early on in the funding life cycle, and um, I guess I'll have a bit of a spoiler alert here. Often when investors put money into companies, they will do it on the same or substantially the same form of documents. And one of those documents is called the voting agreement. And it's on something called what we would call the NVCA or National Venture Capital Association form. And they did this just to kind of make it easy on everybody and to try to standardize legal documents. But if you look at that and you look at what typically happens and how people agree in the voting agreement to constitute their board, you'll often see a common stock director or a founder who is there to represent the interest of the common. You'll also often see, as you mentioned, a director for the series that is being invested in. And so that could be, you know, we start at the beginning A, and sometimes we go all the way up to F, G, or H, just depending on how many private rounds of financing a company might have. But we would start, and so you might have what you would see your series A director. And sometimes not every round has a director, not every investor requires a director, but you're going to usually see investor directors on the board. And the more rounds that you take and the more private money that you consume in the various rounds, you may have more, you may acquire more what we would call investor directors, series A, series B, series C. You're also going to have often someone who is a CEO director. So that's pretty common, particularly if you have somebody managing the company who maybe is not a holder of the common stock. So that sometimes happened. And the purpose of that seed is really to make sure that there's just a direct representative from the chief executive of the company on the board. It's not always something that is that is on a board, but it is something that you'll often see. And then to your point, you'll also have an addition, and the NVCA docs also have space for this. You'll also have people who maybe have expertise in the industry, um, who are quote unquote independent in that they're not representing an investor. They're not 
a member of management and they're providing sort of advice to that company and, and looking at it through that lens of, again, but I want to really differentiate here because that gets to the question of who is a board and who should not be on a board. And what you're really looking for in those independent directors, as Tom said, is people who have expertise in growing a business, or perhaps if you're considering selling your business to someone who have experience selling a business, who have that high level experience. And that brings us to the discussion of what is not a board member or who is not a board member. Before we get to that, I want to ask you guys a question because I got a term sheet this week for one of my clients. They are a successful Series A company. They have product market fit. They're really looking for their first, I would say, institutional round of capital to grow the company. They received a term sheet where the board member asked for a few things. Uh, one of those things was they wanted to constitute a board that had two founder members, two investor members, and one independent. Tom, what are the risks of accepting that position? Well, it sounds like a fairly balanced board at the outset. However, uh, the first question I would ask is, you know, how much of the company is being sold? It could be possible that by putting two investor members on that board, that a disproportionate representation of the ownership of the company is, is being laid out really for the benefit of the investors, not so much for the founders in all likelihood. The other risk here is that you mentioned this is Series A. There'll be other later rounds of funding occurring. And as Melanie noted, in future rounds, if the classes of stock have different rights, often those classes will have board representation as well. And so we may find ourselves in a situation where we have a board that is a majority represented by you know the financial players and and not uh, have the kind of balance that makes more sense for uh, for operational excellence at the end of the day. Another question that comes to my mind is how is that independent board member chosen? You know, is it is it chosen by the financial players or is it chosen by the the founders or is it something else? I agree. That's an important distinction people don't think about is who nominates that person. You right. know, certainly there might be a, a, a collective agreement as to who that person is, but who nominates that person is a subtle um, power position. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. The other thing I find is that the investor members of a board can often be quite compelling in their presentations at board meetings and can easily sway an independent board member because the independent board member may think that the investor knows better than the founders. But over time, I've noticed that maybe the founders actually know more about what the company is doing. And so it can often be very risky for a founder to give up control at a Series A level that early in the company to give up control of the board, not to control more board seats than the investor, even if it feels fairly balanced, as you mentioned, with the two, two, and one is that that one person can sometimes easily get swayed by maybe the loudest person in the room. And so I think it also matters sort of who the investor directors are and, and really how you manage those investor directors. And I think that's really one of our later sessions will be on, you know, how do you effectively manage board members outside the boardroom so that in a board meeting, they don't surprise you or, or don't try to sway somebody against you. But I do want to get back to what Melanie said, which is, what is not a board? Because this is kind of a confusion level for a lot of CEOs is what is not a board? Is a board is an advisory board a board? Is our board observers actually board members? Maybe you can help us a little there, Melanie, and maybe Tom can also jump in and help us a little on that. Yeah. So 
the answer to your question is an advisory board is, for lack of a better, I guess, phrase, not a board. <laughs> the advisory board's role, and, and to be really clear, this is a separate set of individuals or a separate sort of entity. It can have board members can serve on the advisory board. That's possible. But really, an advisory board is to advise the company on a certain aspect of its business. So for instance, you'll often see in life science companies something called a scientific advisory board. And what that is, these aren't necessarily people that have expertise in selling a company, running a company, raising money in a company, looking at the overall duties that a company may have to a shareholder. Instead, this could, you know, for instance, if you're developing a cancer therapeutic, perhaps it's a person that has excellence and expertise and academic credentials in CART-T development, just to give an example. Um, or perhaps they're a person that's developed, you know, and ex- has an expertise in how to design solar energy cells, or perhaps they're an engineer with that specific experience, or maybe they have experience in how to design a better battery that doesn't require as much of a charge and doesn't use as much resources. So the scientific advisory board Those members can provide advice to the company and can help the founders design a product or answer some technical questions about a product, or they can even help in some instances with determining what the market might be for a product. But they're not board members who have duties to the shareholders. Instead, they're consultants to the company, and they're often subject to what we would call an advisory board agreement. Because one of the things that you'll always hear a lot of people ask is, do board members have to have NDAs? And the answer is no. If you are a board member of the board of directors, you have duties to the company that are going to be superseded or supersede an NDA. However, an advisory board, that's a consultant. So you give them an advisory board agreement to make sure, A, it's clear who owns the IP that comes out of the relationship. B, that they will keep your information confidential, and C, how will they be compensated? Typically, you might give them stock options or restricted stock units or some sort of cash compensation if, if that's on the table. And you know, D, what are, how often do you want to see them? What are the sort of services that you expect from them? Those aren't things that you're going to put in a sort of agreement, quote unquote, necessarily with a member of your board of directors, but it is something you would do with an advisory board member. And so something where people get stuck a lot is they think, well, gee, there's this great guy. He's a, he's a genius in battery technology. I'd really love to take him onto my board because he used to work for Tesla and all these other things. He needs to be a member of my board of directors, but he doesn't have any other business experience. And the answer is, you don't have to put him on your board of directors just to get access to his brain. You can put him on your scientific advisory board or an advisory board and have him work for you on a consulting basis. And that's that's a key difference. You see a lot of people use it interchangeably, but they're very different. Oh yeah, I was gonna jump in on two things. One, you know, one is that you're you're right, Melanie. The the key distinction here is that the board of directors members have legal duties to the company and its shareholders, and we'll get into what those are in a moment, which means they could be held liable, you know, uh, for failure to meet those duties. The advisors have a much lower standard <laughs> there and um, don't have that same level of risk. So oftentimes the expert in the field is uh, 
is very comfortable being an advisor and not necessarily being a formal member of the board of directors. The other category that comes up here is that when companies are financed, oftentimes, as we noted, a, a, the uh, venture capital fund investors will have a representative who is a fiduciary you know, on the board of directors and may also ask to include an observer to the board of directors. The observer uh, is just that. They are not a member of the board. They observe the board meetings. Sometimes there are experts that can provide good input at board meetings, but they are not fiduciaries and don't have that same level of risk uh, and duties. For purposes of uh, us lawyers, we want to make sure that those observers actually have signed NDAs because they don't have that same obligation to keep company information confidential that you do by virtue of merely being a member of the board of directors. So um, a quick nuance there that we want to make sure is, uh, is known before you invite anyone to your board meeting. Yeah, I think those are great points, guys. And I, I really, one of the things I, I think sometimes my founders don't understand is just how powerful a board position is from the perspective of getting information about the company. If you sit on the board, you have unlimited rights to information. If you're just merely an investor, your information is limited to information that's relevant to your investment. And so often uh, somebody might ask to be on the board or ask to be a board observer because what they understand about that, that is that they get access to information. And I think that distinction that both of you mentioned about both at the advisory board level and also at the board observer level, two different things, right? But they both have a, a risk of information leakage. The risks are clearly higher for observers because their access to information is somewhat unlimited. But also that access of information from the advisory board member is something that Melanie brought up and I think is very important. So the key is you need to protect your confidential information and potentially even restrict what those people have the right to see. Because unlike the board members, as we mentioned, they don't have a duty to the company to keep that information confidential or to use that information only for the purposes of managing the company. I think we've touched on a lot of great topics today, and I, I think we've given hopefully folks who are interested in how boards are formed and how they're how to think about constituting a board and what's not a board member and even what are some of the duties for the board. So I think what we want to do now is finish up with a client question. In each of the sessions, we'll ask our clients before we come to the session for a question that's relating to that session and we'll try to answer that question for it. So the question today comes from a growth stage company uh, and their question is how often do boards meet at, at a typical growth stage company, and then what should be happening at that board meeting? And before I turn that over to my colleagues, I'll say our next session is on running an effective private company board meeting. So we're going to answer this question briefly today, but if you want to learn more, check out session two of our podcast in the boardroom. Tom, what do you think? How often? Is your board yeah, how often? Should, so, I think from the perspective of the entrepreneurs, you know, you know, at your sort of Series A or early, early fancy world, their view would be the board should meet as uh, little as often, uh, you know, not much. <laughs> uh, um, from the perspective of the investors who have just put their money to work and uh, with with a new team that they're not all that familiar with, uh, they would probably tell you monthly. Uh, and so, the uh, the balance is somewhere in between. I would say that I think the proper 
uh, general annual cadence would be something like four meetings a year, meeting quarterly. There is always the opportunity under a company's bylaws to meet more frequently than quarterly, especially if important strategic decisions need to be made. But a standing quarterly meeting is a great way to to get started. And uh, that that's probably my, my sort of key advice on, on day one. Uh, as always, uh, when businesses are just getting off the ground and are, have their first round of institutional capital, the CEOs will be in very frequent contact with their board members anyway. And, uh, you know, another piece of advice, I guess, which will just goes into what should happen in a board meeting is what shouldn't happen in a board meeting is surprises. And so we'll, we'll save surprises for session two. Uh, anyway, Melanie. Good one. Yeah, no surprises. And, um, I would say what I, you know, obviously I agree with Tom, you know, completely, definitely founders sometimes would like to have less investors would always like to have more quarterly is pretty typical to have once you've gotten around to funding. And obviously, if you are the board member, you you don't have to meet with yourself. Um, you may meet with yourself every day. But <laughs> you don't need to minute it. That's a little less complicated. But but yes, I think quarterly quarterly is right. And then what shouldn't happen at a board meeting, and this is the really tough thing that we'll talk about more in the next session, is there is a balance that needs to be struck between saying everything that is happening in your business and having an agenda that is structured to hit on the major topics that you want the board to know. And sometimes you'll find, depending on the circumstances, you're looking at needing to present more detail. And other times you may find that a general overview is more needed. And again, I completely agree. No surprises. That makes everyone uncomfortable. So That's great, guys. I, I, I think that's the best advice maybe we gave today. Certainly some real valuable advice in today's session. This wraps up the first session on In the Boardroom, Practical Advice and Guidance for Growth-Oriented Companies. I want to thank my colleagues, Melanie Levy and Tom Burton, for joining me. I'm Steve Osborne, and we'll see you in the next session.